Well, let's pray together as we uh, open the word of the Lord. Consider what he's what is there before us. God, we do thank you and praise you for who you are. Lord, we thank you for this time where we can humble ourselves before you and before your word. And Lord, we pray that as we consider the passage before us, Lord, that you would speak, that you would move. Lord, convict us of places where our lives are out of alignment with you. God, help us, we pray. In Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, I asked this early on in the week at the, uh, during the midweek announcements, if you get that email. And that is, the, I raised the question, what causes you to sing? What makes you want to sing? Is it good things? Do you sing when you're happy? Do you sing when you're excited? Do you sing when you're joyous? Do you sing when there are sad times, when, when things are difficult? Do you sing when your children do something spectacular or frustrating? Do you sing because of something that happened with your spouse or your best friend? We have, as a society, we have lots of reasons that we sing. We like to sing at the end of big events. And if, if you ever watch sporting events, you'll know that every baseball player has a, their own title track as they're walking out to the plate, right? They're getting ready to go. It pumps them up. It gets them ready. Or, or back in the 70s when Queen came out with that song, We Are the Champions, it was a, a call, a rally for people who had just won. Or then there's songs like The Eye of the Tiger and, and those movements, those exciting things to pump us up and get us ready to go. Well, I, have, I, I need to admit that I have a problem with singing. And that is, you see, I, I tend to burst into song at what feels like random times. And I wish Danielle was in here because she would give a rousing amen and nod her head. But she's down with Kids Connection. You see, when we were in college, we'd be in the dining commons at Taylor University. And we'd sit down. It might just be the two of us. It might be several of us with our roommates and during the course of the conversation, some word or some phrase would be said. And immediately I would think of a song that has that phrase in it. And so I would burst into song and start singing it. And her roommate had the same problem. She would do the very same thing. And I got to tell you, I, I wish it was endearing. I wish it made Danielle love me more. But no, it was more frustrating. You see, it, sometimes it was a love song. And even those weren't very endearing because it was always at the wrong time. Sometimes it was a chorale tune that, that we'd been working on. Sometimes it's a TV show theme song. I just burst into song. Her roommate too. Now, Danielle and my kids will tell you that it doesn't last long when I do this. Because it's only worth the phrase that I sing. And frankly, I can't remember song lyrics very much after that little phrase. And I got to tell you, I, I have tried to break myself of that habit. But as Chicago used to say, such a hard habit to break. <laughs> uh, good old days. Anyways, today we're going to consider Psalm 149, the second to last book in Psalms. This is the second to last chapter that we're going to consider in our little 
Summer Psalter series. And as we consider this psalm, we're going to be thinking about how who God is and what he has done should cause us to sing. It shouldn't be just random moments. It shouldn't be those loving feelings that you have for your spouse or your children. But singing praise to God is one habit that we should not ever break. So if you have your copy of God's Word and would like to open it to Psalm 149, Brian read that for us, but we're going to consider it more fully. And, and so one of the things that we get to see right here at the beginning of Psalm 149 is that it is a congregational call to praise Yahweh in song. If you remember a few weeks ago, we began looking at that name, that word Yahweh, which is essentially God's covenant name for his people, for himself to his people. But this is a a congregational call to praise Yahweh, specifically in song, to praise him in song. You see, we often equate worship with music. In fact, there there are many times when people have referred to a worship service, or they'll refer to our time together and say, we're going to have a time of worship. And then the pastor will get get up there and drone on and on and on and on for however long he feels like it. But really what we have to recognize is that worship is everything we do. When we're together, worship every part of the service from what we sing to what we read to what we pray to to the word that is proclaimed. It's all worship. But specifically here, this psalm is speaking to the songs that we sing. But I think it's interesting that the psalmist here doesn't simply call God's people to worship. He doesn't simply call God's people to to sing. He calls the saints or all God's people To come together to praise Him. Look at what it says in in the very first verse. It says, praise the Lord. Sing, Sing to the Lord a new song. His praise in the assembly of the godly. You see, there, the, the gathering or the assembling of God's people is a significant part of our corporate worship and our corporate witness to the world. You see, for the people of Israel, it was in those initial gatherings where, where God at Mount Sinai, he gave them their covenant. They were all together, however, a couple million of them together, gathered, camping around, hearing the covenant, hearing the word from the Lord about how they should live, what they would do for him and what he would do for them. It was in those early gatherings that Moses passed along those expectations. And and throughout Israel's history, they were called to gather together a few times a year, specifically to celebrate, specifically to offer sacrifices. In fact, on uh, October 10th, we're going to have Rabbi Bobby, uh, Bobby Pristup, who's a a Messianic rabbi. He's going to come and talk about the fall Feast. If you've noticed, those of you guys who are going back to school, you notice about every other week you've got a vacation day, right? It's because of those fall feasts. Well, Bobby's going to explain that the second week in October. But you see, but I think what's important for us to recognize is that their assembly for the people of Israel, their gathering mattered. Their gathering was important. For who they were. And for us as Christians, our assembly matters as well. It identifies us as a unit. It makes us distinct from other congregations. But it's also a means of us honoring and glorifying God. 
Jonathan Lehman, in one of his books called One Assembly, notes that the gathering of the local church is an outpost or an embassy of heaven. Through preaching and the ordinances, Jesus publicly identifies himself with us in these gatherings. He says, I am there among them. He tied his authority to those gatherings. And elsewhere, Lehman continues, he says, uh, the church gathering is where Christ's kingdom becomes visible and active. And Jesus' word, ecclesia, or the assembly, communicates this. You see, our name, church, comes from that Greek word, ecclesia. We've talked about that before. And that essentially, we are, we are the church when we're gathered, truly. We're the church when we're dispersed, but more fully, we honor God. We represent, we identify as God's people when we gather. In this psalm, Israel is called to gather to praise Yahweh. And it's just one of the things that they were supposed to do, to do together. It is one of the things that we are supposed to do together. You see, at various times in this pandemic, we've been mandated by governing authorities to to be dispersed, to be separated, to remain at home. And I, I don't know about you guys, but I'm kind of getting sick of hearing Zoom and hearing distance, social distance, be six feet apart, stay away, do your part. And these, these times of detachment and dispersed worship were alternatives to the true corporate gathering. But it's not the same. And I, I think even though we have the technology to do this, then there are some who need us to be able to keep streaming the service. It's not a sufficient replacement for us being able to gather you know, some of us, myself included, I, I've enjoyed times of being able to watch other services, uh, watch how people do that, watch how other churches do their thing, watch how they do their streaming, watch how worship teams lead and, and the kinds of music they pick, how they minister to the kids, how pastors preach. And it's been a learning experience for me. But every time I've watched another church, I've always watched as an outsider looking in. And I think in many ways, when we watch even our own service from home, we're sort of choosing to be outside watching in. Sure, we may be viewing it. We may be participating as best we can. But it's not the same as when we get to come together and lift our voices together in song. There's something profound that happens when we sing a line of a song and understand how impactful that can be in someone else's life. Some time ago, I, was, I, was, I heard Mark Dever share, you know, in, in their church, he's pastor at Capitol Hill Baptist. Their church is sort of in the round. He kind of, the podium is sort of out in this one place and the old sanctuary is way out this way. And, and uh, uh, the newer part or they added on is over this way. And so the, as the pastor's preaching, he's, he can look like 270 degrees. Well, he sits right over here. When they're singing songs and he said there have been multiple times when they're singing a song, a song like it is well. If you've ever heard the story behind it as well, you know that the, the author of that had just lost his daughters in a shipwreck. And, and as he was going over to England to see them, he wrote down the words when peace like a river 
uh, attendeth my way and sorrows like deep billows roll. Well, Dever noted, he said, when we're singing songs, I can look and I can see how that lyric, how that line is impacting that person. I think, oh, man, he said he's not a very emotional guy, but he can be moved to tears when he considers that as we're gathered together. And it's really in that in that togetherness that we get to experience that. But I think in our gathering, in our singing, we get to praise God in a few different ways. Let's look briefly at at verses 2 to 3 of Psalm 149. It says, Let Israel be glad in his maker, and let the children of Zion rejoice in their king. Let them praise his name with dancing, making melody to him with the tambourine and lyre. There's a few things that the psalmist calls us to there. He's essentially, first of all, calling us to praise God as creator. This is a a specific call to recognize God as the creator of all that there is. And we talked about that a lot last week. Everything that exists in nature and in the universe exists because God created and ordained it. But he created people. He created us, especially unique. And Genesis 1 declares that God made humans, he made us in his image. He made us a little different than the rest of his creation. And so not only is Israel charged to rejoice in in their creator, but they are charged to praise God as sovereign. They're charged to praise God as sovereign in their singing. You see, for the people of Israel in the early part of their history, especially, they were a theocracy. They were a, a, a nation whose God was their king, whose king was their God. God would give orders and he would give mandates and he would give commands and he would give instructions through his prophets, through his priests. And the entire people, the entire nation would move. Well, eventually the people of Israel rejected God as their king. Rejected him. First Samuel tells us that the people rejected God as their king. And so they said, we want another king. We want someone else. And so all these surrogate kings stepped in and began to rule sort of in place of God with God's blessing. But yet they ruled in place of God. And yet all the while the psalmist here is saying, even though that's your king, you have another king. God is your king. We need to praise him as king. He is your true sovereign. For years, people have called the United States a Christian nation. And while we were founded on Christian principles by men who who professed some allegiance to God, we are far from a Christian nation. And I know for some of us, when I first heard somebody say, oh, we're no longer a Christian nation, I was hurt. But the more I think about it, the more I think, you know, that's not a bad thing. That, you, that the United States is not linked with being a Christian nation. And here's why. We were having a conversation with someone on, on uh, Monday. He comes from another country. He comes from a country that is all identified with his religion. And, and we, we talked about the fact that the United States is not a Christian nation. And, and I said the reason is because the, the government doesn't make decisions that are guided by the Bible that are guided by God, that are guided by Scripture. But we as Christians, we have citizenship here in this nation, but we also serve a king, a sovereign, who is over all of that. 
And ultimately, he is the one to whom we are accountable. We will give account to him for eternity. And and so here's, you know, I, I think that as a nation, we need to pray and we need to work and we need to put people, Christians, Bible-believing, gospel-oriented people in the highest level of office. We need to continue to pray that Congress will pass laws that, are, that line up with Scripture, that, the values of, that God's values would be the values of our nation. We need to pray for and, and work toward that kind of transformation. But whether or not we have Christians in Washington or Annapolis... Rockville or Poolsville, making rules, making laws, we still get to worship God and praise God as our king, our sovereign, our ruler. But more than just praising God as the creator, as the king, the psalmist urges God's people to praise God, to praise him with movement, to praise him with movement. Our singing should involve more than just our mouths. The psalmist calls God's people to dance. We could even translate the third line of, or or the last line of verse 3 is to saying, making melody to him with drums. Way to go, Brian. And with guitars. How's that, Rick and Tyler and Dan? We have those. And not everybody can play drums really well. Believe me, I had that musical mayhem camp and art camp. And uh, musical mayhem class in art camp. And not everybody can play drums. Not everybody can play guitar. But we can all sing. And I think we can all dance. Are we moving in our worship? Are we getting our entire bodies involved when we worship God? When we sing praises to him? I know some people are more comfortable with that. Some people like to raise their hands. Some people like to clap. And I know when Brian put out that call to clap this morning, some of you are like, let's golf clap this. And I get it. I do. It's, it's uncomfortable. You don't know, should you clap this way, that way? What do you do with your feet? Well, let me just tell you, dancing has been a part of Israel's history and, and there's a, actually a scene in, in, first, in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 6, sort of a tragic and yet profound story. If you remember, the Ark of the Covenant, which rep- represented God's covenant with his people, had been away. It had been in another country, and they brought it back, and it, it stayed at someone's house for a while. And finally, King David was there, and, and he was ready to bring it into town. And he was so excited. In fact, he was so elated that, that he would walk a few steps, and he would sacrifice an animal and worship God. And then he'd walk a few more steps and sacrifice another animal and worship God. And eventually, this got to be so raucous and so big that David just started dancing. In fact, he took off his outer cloak, and he he just began dancing in the street as the ark of God was coming down the lane on its way into town, on its way into the temple to the place where it would rest. And he was excited. And so all the people around him were worshiping God and praising him, dancing. All the people around except for his wife. Don't you know she was looking from out her window in, in, uh, in the castle or in David's house. And I don't know exactly if it went like this, but I can imagine her crossing her arms and just looking at you. You know that look, kids, you know the look mom can give you, right? That look of, 
disdain, of contempt. Well, she gave that look to David. She stormed out of her house, went down to him and said, David, you're making a fool of yourself. You are dishonoring yourself in in front of all these people, all these servants. And David replied in, in 2 Samuel 6, 21 to 22, he retorted to Michael and he says, I was dancing before the Lord and he chose me above your father and all his family. He appointed me as the leader of Israel, the people of the Lord. So I will celebrate before the Lord. Yes, and I am willing to look even more foolish than this, even to be humiliated in my own eyes. But those servant girls you mentioned will indeed think I am distinguished. David had a dance party, praising God, worshiping God. So um, you may be asking yourself, so Joel, are you telling us we need to go charismatic? No, I'm not necessarily calling us to do that. We don't need to get banners and start doing the whole, no. No. But I do think that our worship, our singing should involve all that we are. I love getting to see some folks. You know, I, actually, I, I get distracted sometimes, but don't stop from doing this. When I see some folks, you know, waving their hands or some people know sign language. Jackie Adam knows some sign language. So she's there signing the songs, kind of doing her own little dance. Some people are raising their hands and it's just a joy to see us dancing and singing before the Lord. If we're willing to get excited when the Nationals or the Capitals or the Washington football team win some sort of big event, how much more should we be willing to sing and get into it when we worship the God who who sacrificed His own Son for our behalf? We, I think, need to move when we worship. I think there's a place for stoic reverence. There's a place to be somber in our worship. There are times when we have that reality. We need to face the reality of our sin and how we've dishonored God. But there are other times when we just need to cut loose. There's another song that just popped in my head, but I'm not going to sing it. But the psalmist concludes this section with a beautiful and profound verse. In verse 4, it says, For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. The Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. And in some ways, it seems like this verse, it seems like the first line of this verse is the, really the summary, sort of the bookend of the first half of the psalm. Because all of it, remember, the, the psalm is saying, hey, y'all come together, let's sing praise to God, let's get down, let's praise Him with singing, praise Him with drums, praise Him with guitars. Because God delights in His people. He delights in you and me when we worship Him. He delights in our singing. He even delights in those of us who can't carry a tune in a bucket. At camp, there's, a, there's oh, I love it. There, you know, there's some people who, who just, they, their, their ears don't allow them to hear that their voice is, is not there. Then there's a lady at camp this summer 
And she loves God. And she loves to sing. And she sings out. She sings loud. And she cannot hear the tune at all. But I love it. And I think God delights in that. That God delights. So if you are like that lady at camp, sing out. Sing praise to God. And don't worry about what people around you are saying. Because there is one. We sing for an audience of one. And he delights in our singing. In tune and out of tune. But the second line of this this. This verse, in verse 4, it says, He adorns the humble with salvation. Almost seems to be the prelude. It seems to be the, the, something that's giving us insight into what's about to happen, what the psalmist is about to say. Because we're going to get to see a call to praise Yahweh for His salvation. A call to praise Yahweh for His salvation. The salvation that God brought to Israel was in the form of some sort of a military victory. In fact, consider what it says in verses 5 through 9. Let the godly or let the saints exalt in glory. Let them sing for joy on their beds. Let the the high praises of God be in their throats and two-edged swords in their hands. To execute vengeance on the nations and punishment on the peoples. To bind their kings with chains, their nobles with fetters of iron. To execute judgment on... Execute on them the judgment written. This is honor for all his godly ones. Praise the Lord. You see, while this psalm and and along with the other psalms that we're considering are really the final amen for the entire book of psalms. This one seems to also acknowledge that there's a practical victory that either God has done or, or God will do. In fact, some commentators call this a victory psalm. And reflect that this psalm may be an extension of, of a verse that we read last week. If you have your Bibles open, look real briefly at, at Psalm 148. Just go one chapter earlier. In the very last verse, it says, He has raised up a horn for his people. Praise for all his saints, for the people of Israel who are near him. Praise the Lord. And remember, last week we talked about the horn is, is a symbol of strength. It's a symbol of dignity. It's a, in some ways, it's a symbol of victory. And so some commentators think that Psalm 149 is really taking Psalm 148.14 and blowing it up and saying, look at what God has done or look at what God will do. And whether this is a victory that has happened in the recent past or one that is expected in the near future, the victory is the Lord's. And In that case, his people are his instruments. And I don't know if it catches you kind of funny when we read it and you hear, let the praise of God be on their throats, in their throats, and the sword, a two-edged sword in their hand. It kind of, like, wait, 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 it doesn't sound quite right. And remember, we we have to keep in mind that Israel was a theocracy. As a nation, they were a Jewish nation. They were all together. So what God said, they did. And so at times they were called in obedience to God to move out and to act. But as Christians, it seems like militant action for our faith is inconsistent with what Jesus taught. Jesus called us to act as believers in a different way. That being said, I think there is room 
for Christians who are citizens of a nation to be able to serve on behalf of that nation. But I don't think there's room for us as the church to take up arms against another people or another group, another religious group. Do you see the distinction? As a congregation, we are called to praise, we're called to serve, we're called to love. As citizens, we, we can serve in the military if we feel God calling us to that. But overall, we have to recognize that the praise that Israel is being called to bring before God is a praise in song and a praise in obedience. They're called to sing, but they're also called to act in obedience to God. And we get to rejoice in the fact that God has already achieved victory or salvation through Jesus Christ. Think about this. Yahweh brought security through Jesus. We get to praise him. Notice what the psalmist writes in verse 5. He says, let the godly exalt in glory. And let them sing for joy on their beds. Now, this seems like an odd place to sing. Do you sing very often in your bed? I mean, some people will play music. Zoe loves to have music going all night long. Do you sing in your bed? Not really. I never hear you sing. But it seems strange. Why would we worship God in bed? What? Well, several commentators suggested that this reference to beds may imply security or safety. I mean, mean, think about this. When there is peace, whether it's political peace, emotional peace, relational peace, spiritual, rest and security are more clearly felt. When there's peace in all those places, when we don't have to worry about that, we can worship God as we lay down. You see, in Jesus, we have security because there is no shame. Romans 8, 1 talks about that he says therefore there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in christ jesus we god has won security for us in jesus christ but we also get to see that this salvation from god is is as yahweh dealt with the consequences of our sin through jesus oh praise him first peter Chapter 2, verses 21 to 24 says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. And elsewhere in 2 Corinthians we read, For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sins so that we could be made right with God through Christ. But finally, this victory that we have In Jesus, we see that God has ushered in a new way of living. God has ushered in a new way of living. Just as God gave the people of Israel expectations that he had for them in that covenant, so too Jesus Christ in the Sermon on the Mount gave us insight into how we should live, how we should live distinct from the world around us, how we should live in humility, how we should live as truth-speaking people, as we, how we should live as peacemakers. 
how we should live generously, without judgment, and without anxiety. There is something beautiful that we get to experience when we place our lives in Jesus' capable hands. His death and resurrection has given us eternal peace. We may not always experience peace every moment of every day, but we can sit back and know that God is in control and that my future is in his hands and have peace with that. We have no fear of judgment coming before God because Jesus has paved the way for us to be in relationship with God. Now I know the Holy Spirit still has some work to do in us. Making what is true eternally be true now. And we call that sanctification, that process of becoming more holy, that process of becoming that person that God has called us to be. But what's more, we have been given a new way of living, new marching orders of peacemaking. And so, friend, if you're not yet a follower of Christ, I want to just encourage you. Receive his free gift of eternal life. Trust in him. But as we close, I want to just take a few moments to think about a few things. This psalm helps us realize that it's time to come together. For those of you guys who are at home, we have a seat for you. I know some of you are staying home because it's difficult for your kids to be here. And, and really, that's why we're making some changes starting September 12th. We're, we're trying to do some things in order to make it easier for the youngest among us to be here. I know some are staying home because you absolutely despise these masks. I do too. I hate them with a passion. But, and, and wearing a mask in worship... Danielle always gets on me about this because, you know, I'm up here. I'm here. You don't ever see a mask on my face. She's like, you don't know how hard it is to sit there and sing with a mask on. You're right. I don't. It's inconvenient. And I could finish the sermon like this, but I would probably mess up the microphone. But I want to just encourage if, if, if you're staying at home because you have to wear a mask, it's inconvenient. Let me encourage you. It was inconvenient for Jesus Christ to go to the cross for us. He even said, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. Take this cup from me. The least we can do, as long as our government mandates it, is to put a mask on for an hour or two on Sundays. I know there are others who are staying home and watching because you have health concerns. This virus seems to never... Go away, but I want to encourage you. Cast your anxieties before the Lord. He cares for you. Our singing might be muffled by these masks, but for those of you guys who are staying at home all the time, our singing is incomplete without you. But for those of you guys who are here each week, faithfully, Let me encourage us to continue to praise God in all that we are. Let us proclaim to the watching world the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. 
the safety and security that we have in Him. But let us, all of us, together live obediently. You see, where, where Israel was called to make their praise known in song and with the sword, I think it's important for us to recognize that our praise should be proclaimed in song and in obedience to God. Our lives Monday through, through Saturday should reflect our praise that we proclaim on Sunday. So how is our life? How is your life? How is mine? If people see us outside of this space, can they say, hmm, that's a Christian? Don't, doesn't that person go to a Baptist church? Would that be a good thing if they saw that or would that be a bad thing? How is your speech? How are you doing loving your neighbor, even just getting to know them? How are you doing stewarding the resources that God has given you? We get to sing praise to God. He's our creator. He's our sovereign. We get to do it with movement. We get to do it because he has securely, he has secured our eternity. The least we can do is live in honor of him each and every day. Let's pray. God, we do thank you so much for this psalm. Thank you for the opportunity to consider it together. And God, I pray that you would help us in our singing. To sing with all that we are, but more importantly, to live fully honoring you. Full obedience to all that you've called us to. Lord, help us to be sensitive to how your spirit is leading us. Be glorified through us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.